Good morning, fellow time travelers. We are an hour into the future. What a strange and wonderful world you live in. The, the future is just amazing to me. Um, we want to invite our children to Children's Church, if you'd like to meet your teacher in the back. Um, and while they go, let me uh, open us in a word of prayer. Lord, we are indeed desperate for you. And Lord, your word is bread to our souls. Um, Lord, your spirit is water to quench our thirst. And so, Lord, now as we turn to your word to hear these wonderful things that you've promised, Lord, would you feed our souls? Would you feed our faith? Would you build us up through the power of your word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, according to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to the glory of God? And Lord, we ask all of this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. So um, just to remind you where we're at, the, the lay of the land here, uh, the book of Exodus, as I've kind of outlined it, uh, comes in three sections. The first is God delivers us or God redeems us. And that was chapter 1 through 15. That was the plagues. That was the Exodus. That was the crossing of the Red Sea. And then after God has delivered us, then what comes next is God rules us. And so from chapter 16 to 25, there are these laws that he passes on to us. And that's what we looked at last week is the Christian and the law. How does that fit together? Where we're at now is at the end of that section. We're pulling into the end of this, this uh, part where God rules us. And then what comes after that will be God with us. And that's 25 through 38, the rest of the book. And what, what happens in that section about God being with us is, is the tabernacle. And, and why does he build a tabernacle? What's the point of that? So in this section called God Rules Us, uh, we're almost done. We, we looked last week at all of these laws that God laid out. And I told you last week that was called the Book of the Covenant. Um, and, and the reason is because we'll see next week, Moses is going to sprinkle blood on the Book of the Covenant. And so the thought is, well, it must be that section because that's what he gave us. Um, what we're going to see next week is the ratification of the covenant, the, the inauguration of the covenant. So between the laws of the covenant and the inauguration of the covenant or the ratification or the, the celebration of the covenant, we get this. And what this section is, is it is the tremendous promise of the covenant. So it's not God, God establishes covenant. He just didn't say, well, here's all these things you got to go do. Now go do them. Part of that agreement, part of that, that covenant that God enters into is here are all the things that I'm going to do for you. Now, usually in, in ancient Near East covenants, at this point in the covenant making, what you would get is all the promises and all the curses. So do this, and I will do these things for you. Don't do that, and here's the bad things that are going to happen. What's conspicuously missing from this section today is any of the bad stuff. Now, that's not to say there isn't curses attached to the old covenant, but we don't get them here. They, they come later in, in, uh, in the Pentateuch, later in, in Moses' writing. So what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see these covenant promises from the Old Testament, but then we're also going to learn what the yes and amen to those covenant promises are, how, how they come to us. So um, what we're going to see is, like I said, last week was the book of the covenant. It was laws. This week we're going to get the promise of travel, promises for the travel, promises for the conquest, and promises for the land. And then next week, we get the ratification of the covenant, which is, involves blood. So we'll look at those things, those promises, real quick. And then after that, I want to come back and answer three questions. Who is the angel? What is the conquest? And where is the land? Um, and, and see where, where those things fit in. So what we'll do first is we'll just go through these promises 
in the immediate context and let them kind of sink in and see what they are, and then we'll back up and look at them again. So the promise of travel uh, starts out with this promise that an angel will go before you. There will be an angel who's going to precede them. Now, we've met this angel before. I don't know if you remember in, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses goes up on the mountain and he sees this burning bush, that was the angel of the Lord speaking to him there. And then the next place we saw them is the angel of the Lord is when they're leaving Egypt. The angel stands between the army of Egypt and the uh, Israelites while they get ready to cross the Red Sea. So this angel has come up before. But what we're going to see here is even more detail about this angel. And who is this? We'll answer that in a minute. But look at what he does. He's going to go before them. Um, sometimes we might be tempted to confuse him with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. Because the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire be, go before them. The pillar leads them. But it's also the angel that leads them. And so I think the, the way to do this carefully is the pillar is a physical manifestation. Just like when God appeared at the top of Mount Sinai, it was thunder and lightning and clouds and trumpet blasts and, and a fire going up like a kiln. That wasn't God. That was a manifestation, a physical manifestation of God's presence there. So similarly, this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that goes is not the angel, but it is a representation. It is, it is the kind of um, natural phenomena that happens because the angel is there. And so uh, don't, let's not confuse the two, but the angel is going to go before them. And here's the most wonderful promise that God makes is he will go before you to guard you on the way to guard you on the way. So as this angel is going before them, and this is really important to remember, especially not just through the rest of Exodus, but through the rest of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and into Joshua, as they're traveling, the first thing anybody meets of Israel is this angel. He's going before them. He is guarding them. So anything that comes to Israel has come through that angel. That angel is only going to allow things to come to Israel the way that he intends them, for the purposes that he intends them, and, and for the reasons that he intends them. And so here's a prime example, the best example I could think of, of this angel standing between Israel and her enemies is Balaam. You remember Balaam, right? King Balak of Moab saw the Israelites come into his territory and he said, man, we got to do something about this. Go get the prophet Balaam and he can come here and he can curse them and that'll zap them and that'll take care of it. And so Balaam is told, uh, don't go with them. And so Balaam says, sorry, I can't do it. And then they come and ask him a couple more times. And finally, the Lord says, okay, Balaam, go. So Balaam is like, okay, well, I guess I'll go. But I can only say what the Lord will let me say. So do you remember what happens as he's leaving? He's going along. And all of a sudden, it says God is angry at him. Wait, wait God, you told him to go. And now you're mad at him? Well, he's mad at him because he probably knows what's going on in, in Balaam's heart. And so the angel of the Lord stands in the way and stops him. And the donkey sees it, and he can't. And so the donkey crumbles, and he beats the donkey, and the donkey turns around and talks to him. Because <laughs> that happens all the time. It's just an amazing miracle. And then finally, the angel, God opens his eyes so he can see the angel of the Lord. So for Balaam to come, God has called him, said you can go, but he has to go through the angel first before he can engage Israel. So that's the role this angel has, is he stands between Israel and the enemies, and he regulates what comes to them. So you need to remember that as you go through the rest of the Exodus, as they're traveling in the wilderness, because bad things happen. 
But what this is promising is those bad things have come through the angel and it's only what is allowed to happen to them. So that's the, the angel. He's, he's going to go before them. He's going to guard them. And he says that I will br- he will bring you to the place I have prepared. So it's not like the angel is going to be with them for a week or so and then disappear. This angel is going to travel with them all the way to their final destination. He will be in front of them until they get to the promised land. So this place that he's prepared is the promised land that was given to Abraham. So notice that the covenants here don't like end and start. This is taking the Abrahamic promise and bringing it forward and saying, now it's, this is what it's going to look like. This angel will bring you to the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Then the next thing that he says is, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. So apparently, this angel is going to speak to Israel. He's going to give them commands. He's going to tell them to do things. And God warns them up front, you better listen to him. But why, was, why must they listen to him? Why is it so important? Because he says he will not pardon your transgressions. He could. It doesn't say he can't pardon your transgressions. It doesn't say I won't pardon your transgressions. It says listen to this angel because he won't pardon your transgressions. He could, but he will not. And why can he do that? My name is in him. God's name is in this angel, whatever that means. And and reading through some of the commentaries, there were a lot of confusion. When we come back and ask who the angel is, I think that's the key to unlock it, to understand who that is. So whoever this angel is at this point, he has God's full authority. And he speaks on God's behalf to the people. And he's going to go with them. And he's going to protect them. He's going to guard and guide them. So he will be with them to the end, to the, to the uh, arrival. So that's the, this promise of, uh, of the angel coming with him. And then he says, I will be an enemy to your enemies and, and, and an adversary to your adversaries. So the important part here is to, to, to get this straight is to remember that it's not like God is neutral in this. He may or may not be with them. What he's saying is, if you obey the the angel's voice, then you are aligned with me. You're in line with me. And so those who oppose me are the ones who will oppose you, and they will be my enemies. But if you are not aligned with me, if you depart and go a different direction, then your enemies may not be my enemies. (laughs) They may be your own problem. It's kind of like during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln supposedly said, uh, was asked if God is on his side. And Lincoln said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. So that's this other part of this promise. If you listen to the angel, then you will be on my side. If you're on my side, then my enemies are your enemies. Your enemies are my enemies, because we're aligned. So that's, that's the promise of this angel, that he's going to be doing these kind of things. So the angel is going to take them. He's going to be with them through the whole thing. He will fight their fights. Uh, Nothing bad will come to Israel except as has gone through that angel. So that's the promise of of the travel. This is what they've got to look forward to as they leave Mount Sinai and head to Canaan. This is the promise that that's in front of them. So then the next part um, we're going to do this a little bit out of order because I had to parse out uh, the two promises because they're they're like a, a a sandwich. There's the the one promise of the promise of the conquest, and then wedged right in the middle is the promise of Canaan, the promise of the promised land. So, take a look at this this promise of the conquest. When they get there, 
when my angel goes before you and brings to you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, this list of people that is exactly the same people that were mentioned to Abraham, when he brings you there, God says, I will blot them out. Now, doesn't that sound like it's, um, they get to the border, they get to the Jordan, and God goes, squish, done. Okay, take over. There's more to it. It's more nuanced than that. So we have to kind of keep going through this section. But the promise here is that God is going to deal with those, those Canaanites, those people who dwell in the promised land. He will do it. I will blot them out. How will he blot them out? Well, he will blot them out slowly and carefully and methodically. He will do it in a very careful way. So in verse 23, I will blot them out. In verse 28, I will send hornets before you, which will drive them out. 29, I will drive them out before you in one year. 31, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. You shall drive them out. So there's a whole bunch of driving out, and who's doing what here? It's, it's, it's a little confusing. I think the way to put it together is, uh, first of all, God's going to do it. God promised he would blot them out. He would take care of it. The angel is going to be there because your enemies are my enemies. So God's going to do it. Now, the question is, how will God do that? Well, one of the things that he promises is he says, I'll send hornets before you. So hornets is only mentioned three times in the Bible, and all three are in in conjunction with the conquest of Canaan. So it's here. And then in Deuteronomy 7, verse 20, Uh, As Moses is preparing the Israelites to get to the promised land, he assures them that God's going to defeat their enemies. And he says, God beat Pharaoh with all of these plagues, and he's going to send hornets in to drive out your enemies. And then the next place is even more interesting because it's Joshua who brings it up. At the end of his career, after he's led Israel in through the promised land and, and just decimated the promised land, got them settled, Joshua is about to retire. He's about to go to his place and just settle down, and he reminds them. And at the end of his career, he says, God faithfully delivered you. He sent hornets before you to drive out the the inhabitants. Where don't you see the hornets? In the actual conquest. There's no mention of hornets anywhere in the book of Joshua, except for Joshua saying God sent them. So um, there's a lot of you know, as, as you would expect from commentators, they have to say something. They have to, you know, they get paid to write books, and so they have to say something. There's a lot of confusion about the hornets. I think the best way to approach this is hornets are, they're nasty, right? They're just mean. If a, if a bee stings you, the stinger comes out and the bee dies. So they got one shot. Hornets can just sit there and sting you all afternoon. They don't care. They're just mean. And so people fear them. Rightly so. I do. I know I get hornets nest in my uh, eaves every once in a while, and I, I, get the, I can shoot from a distance to kill those suckers. I ain't getting close. They're terrifying. I think what that's a symbol of is it's not that actual hornets actually showed up in the promised land and actually stung people. It is a symbol of what God is saying he's going to do. He says, I will send my terror on them. Uh, there will be physical problems. There are things that are going to happen to them like a hornet sting. It's going to be that bad. So I think he's picturing that in kind of a, a, a physical way, a way that they would understand. So that's the first thing is God's going to go in. He's going to send out the people slowly, methodically, and carefully. He will drive them out because he says, look, if I, if I go in and I just do the squish and the whole land is empty, it's going to take you a while to move in and to settle and to, to fill and populate this land. 
And then what have you got? Well, the fields are all feral, fallow, and they've all overgrown. Wild animals have moved in. That's not good. What's better for me to do is carefully, slowly lead the people out as you come in and you take over. It's just how he's going to carefully care for his people. So that's the first thing. The other thing he talks about in the conquest is God's going to deal with the people. The Israelites are to make no covenant with their gods. They are to overthrow them. And I think the them is talking about their gods, not the, the Canaanites. You are to utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. There shall be no remnant of the worship that happens there. That is part of why God is judging the Canaanites, is their worship was detestable. There are just horror stories of how they worship their false gods. And so what God is saying is, when you go there, I don't want you to even be tempted by their false worship. So when you move in, you eradicate it all. You break it all down. You destroy it. You don't let the people live among you because it's possible that they could lure you away with this seductive worship that they do. And then you'd be in trouble. It's, he says it would be a snare to you. So the promise of the, the conquest is that God is going to do it. He's going to do it through natural means. He's going to do it through his people. He's going to do it through supernatural means. I will blot them out. I'll send hornets. You will blot them out. You will drive them out. So that's the promises that they will actually take over the promised land. It will happen. Just as I promised to Abraham, when you get there, it's going to happen. So the last part is the promise of the land. What happens when we get there? What does that look like? Listen to this description. I think this is just wonderful. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. I will take, away sick, I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in the land. I will fulfill the number of your days. That sounds like a place I would like to go. No sickness. We have sickness. There's been a lot going around the congregation um, um, I was knocked out for a couple of, for about a week or so. Other people have suffered through this. Wouldn't it be nice to live where there's no sickness? Anybody for that? Raise your hand. Amen. Um, to that end, I just want to throw a quick announcement in. Um, years ago, here at, at Trinity, we used to do something called a healing prayer service. And so um, looking to schedule another healing prayer service because we've got a lot of sick people. And so we want to come together specifically to pray for healing because we want this. This is what we're looking for. So the sickness will be gone. None will miscarry. One of the blessings in an agrarian culture like this is a lot of kids because then you get free labor. But not only do you get free labor, but, but having a big family was a sign that you had enough to support a big family. You weren't starving. You didn't have, uh, you couldn't, not take care of your family. A big family meant you could do more. You could till more of your land. You could do those kinds of things. So to have no miscarriages would be a tremendous blessing to them. This is prosperity for them, actually. This is, he will, he will, there will be no more miscarriages and nobody will be barren. Wouldn't that be nice? We've heard so many stories about barren women in the Bible. Sarah was barren. Um, Hannah was barren. So Elizabeth was barren in the New Testament. That was, a, that was a scorn. That was a bad thing for a woman back then. Um, because to have children meant this was my future. This child will take care of me in my old age. To not have children meant when my husband dies, what am I going to do? So his promise here is nobody's going to be barren. Barrenness will be gone. Everybody will have children. Won't that be wonderful? And then he says this curious thing. He says, I will bless your bread and your water. 
has water come up previously in this narrative? At Mara, didn't they run into bad water they couldn't drink? At Masa and Mirabah, didn't they get no water that they had to get out of a stone? So what God is saying is, is I'm going to bless the water that you need. You won't have any dry cisterns. You won't have any empty wells or polluted wells. I'm going to bless your water. And then when he talks about blessing their bread, I think that's what's called the synecdoche, which is one item in the list represents the whole list. So it's not just their bread. It's their bread as your food. So now picture this promise line. This is beautiful. You go there, you'd never have a miscarriage. You never have a stillborn child. No sickness in the land. Water is abundant. It's everywhere. So our flocks will, will just multiply. Our, our fields will be overflowing with grain. And we will not be hungry. We won't have anybody starving. There'll be so much food, it'll be abundant. It'll be for everyone. This is the promise that he's given. This is what, the, what it'll be like in the land if you follow my covenant, if you go along with what I've told you, I will bless you this way. I will take sickness away. There will be no miscarriage. I will fulfill the number of your days. I think what he's saying there is you'll live to a ripe old age. You will live a full and a wonderful life. Can you imagine living to be 160 in that kind of environment where there's no sickness? You never had a day of illness in your life. In 160 years, 150 years, something like that, you never got sick. You never knew anybody that had a miscarriage. You never saw a day of drought in 160 years. Anybody, I would love that. That sounds great to me. This is the promise of the new covenant, so, or the old covenant. So, so what he's saying is, here's all of these laws. These are the things that I want you to do. Ten commandments is kind of the capstone on that, the summary statement. Then the book of the covenant is unpacking that. And then comes the promises. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Would you like that? And what we get next week is their answer. So let's now back up for a second. Who is that angel? Everybody knows. You guys, I'm, thanks for playing along and <laughs> making me feel good. Nobody yelled it out. Who is that angel? Well, look at some of the things that are said about him. He says, I will bring you to the, land, or, I will bring you to the place I have prepared. How is Canaan prepared for them right now? It's filled with Canaanites. It's filled with false worship. How is that land prepared? Well, it, it's prepared as in its promise, but it's not prepared as in ready to move in. It's not a turnkey kind of situation. So it's kind of a curious phrase, a little odd phrase that he, he would call it the place I have prepared. Well, who else has prepared something? Listen to John chapter 14, right at the beginning. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Um, if it were not so, would I have told you that I would go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself where I am with you that you may be always. So this place that has been prepared, Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I've prepared it, then you can come and you can be with me. So that's the first little hint that we might, know, we might be familiar with this angel. The next one, it says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. And again, in John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. 
Not if you fear me, not if you're terrified of me, not if you want the good things that I offer you, but if you love me, you keep my commandments. So when you hear this angel speak, keep his commandments. He says he will not pardon your transgression. But as I said, he could. It's possible that he could pardon your transgression, but what God is warning them is he will not do that. Who can pardon transgression? According to Matthew 9, um, well, let me just read it. Matthew 9, getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil thoughts in your heart? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. What they're thinking is only God can forgive sins. And they're absolutely right. Only God can forgive sins. But this angel can forgive sins. But Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. For my name is in him. And this is, like I said, is the most confusing part. And it, I think, is the most important part. Name, Shem in Hebrew, can often just mean name. What is your name? Um, it, it, It can be that simple. But... It can mean more than just name. So here's a quote from the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis. Everybody's got a copy, right? Four-volume set. Actually, it's really great, but it's not something everybody necessarily would use. This is by Alan P. Ross, and here's what he says about the word Shem. Uh, One of the things he says about it. He said, Shem can also signify the nature or attributes of the person named. This is especially true with regard to God. So when God says, my name is in him, what it probably is getting at is my name as in my character, my attributes, who I am is in this angel. And so that, I think, is the biggest tip that this is Jesus who's going to lead them because we get some, uh, some evidence in the New Testament that kind of buttresses this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. God's name is in him. Colossians, or 2 Corinthians 4.4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. God's name is in him. He is the image of God. He is the exact imprint of God. In Colossians 1, 15, he is, the in, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image, the icon, the picture of the invisible. We see him because he is that. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Jesus because he is the image of the invisible God. God's name dwells in Jesus. So when we look at this angel and we see this angel is going to go before the Israelites, everything that we see from this is is tipping us to the point where it says, this is Jesus leading them. This is Jesus who's going before them and encountering their enemies. This is Jesus who is not going to let anything come to them. This is Jesus who they should obey. 
And, and we, the, the one that really, I think, sums that up is Jude verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. It is Jesus who led them out of Egypt. He delivered them from Egypt. And on the road, we haven't got there in the story, but there comes a point where the people rebel. And so God says, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. It's Jesus who did that. So this angel is Christ. It, he, he is the one who is going to fulfill that. So all the promises um, of, of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's great news. Oh, not 4.4. 4, that's the other one. All the promises of God. All the promises of God. Does that include the Old Testament promises? Or only the New Testament ones? All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So this promise of this angel is yes and amen in Jesus. So the next question, what is the conquest? What happens in, in space-time with the Israelites going into Canaan is an actual war. And they will go in and they will wage war against Jericho. They will wage war against Ai. They will wage war against all of these cities throughout the land and they will take it over. But what else does that mean? What more does that mean? So remember when we looked at the law last week and we, we talked about from Deuteronomy, it says, purge the evil from your midst. And what that meant was take people out and stone them if they violate these laws. But when Paul picks that up and he quotes that to the Corinthians, he says, hey, look, this guy is sleeping with his mother, with his father's wife. Throw him out of the church. And then he quotes, purge the evil from among you. So there's a shift in how the law applies from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In that, execution was warranted under the Old Covenant. Something even worse happens in the New Covenant. You're put out of the church. Paul says, turn them over to Satan for the saving of their souls. This is much more dire than just dying on the spot. This is going to be rough. So there's this transition that happens under the law to the new law. So what happens with the conquest? Is the church commissioned to go out and kill everybody in the world and take it all over? When Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, he told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what he told them is not, I am going to find everybody who is my people right now, snap my fingers and bring them all to faith. Instead, he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to commission my church, which right now is very small, 120 people, maybe 300 people at the most, and I'm going to send them slowly throughout the world. You'll start, first of all, in Jerusalem, and then at the right time you move into Judea. You'll spread out to the whole nation. Then you'll go to the weirdos, the Samaritans, the odd ones, the ones that aren't like you, but then you go to the ends of the earth. And how has that been unfolding? Slowly, steadily, methodically. God didn't chase them all out. He is slowly sending his church out, not to kill people, but to drive them to the gospel, to call them to trust in Jesus Christ. And so the conquest that we're involved in is not the same kind of conquest, but it is going to get us something even better. Abraham was promised Canaan. The Israelites came and took Canaan. What we get from Romans chapter 4 is what that promise actually was, was the entire world. And that's what we're working on getting to. So a um, little theological side note here, I get post-millennialists at this point. I'm like, yes, that's what I want. What a post-millennialist means is the gospel was spread throughout the whole world, the world will be converted, 
and be largely predominantly Christian, and there'll be a period of, of wonderful uh, peace and prosperity, and then Jesus will return. And, and looking at this, I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Um, that's not really how the conquest of Canaan happened, where they just kind of swept in and had it all in a day. The conquest of Canaan took a long time. It didn't end when, when Joshua retired. There were still pockets of people who shouldn't be there. And so what you see in the judges that come after Joshua is, well, we've got to go fight these people, and we've got to go fight those people, and we've got to get rid of these folks. And then the next thing you see is the rise of the kings, Saul. The reason he fell from grace, the reason he lost his position is because he refused to do what God said to these people who aren't supposed to be there. And then David comes along, and David begins to conquer and, and take over, and then Solomon. So that conquest of the promised land didn't happen very smoothly all in one shot. It took a while. And, and it, it had its pluses and its minuses, its backs and forths. So as we're, we're looking at the conquest of the world, the gospel goes forward. But it goes forward slowly, methodically, carefully. So then where is the land? Where is that land? The land has some wonderful things. One of the big blessings is God says, I will bless, bless your bread and your water. And as Ramey was praying earlier, the bread of life and the water is the spirit. John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. So when God says, I will bless your bread, I will provide for you abundant sustenance so that you will never hunger. The ultimate answer of that is Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never hunger. That's great news. What about the water? Well, Jesus explains the water to us as well. John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John then kind of says, well, let me explain that to you. What does that mean? John adds, now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who would believe in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So that water that, that Jesus promised to the Samaritan woman at the well, the living water, what he promised her was the Spirit. So Jesus is going to come and he's going to bless our bread and he's going to bless our water. We will feast on him and we will never starve. We will never die. We will drink of the Holy Spirit and never thirst again. This is the kind of land we're talking about. Um, and, and the idea that none will miscarry or be barren in the land comes through in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 65. Let me look that up real quick because I forgot to write it down. I forgot I had just the references there. Um, Isaiah 65, verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children in calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. So even in Isaiah, God is still promising that idea that you will not miscarry. You will not lose your children. And he says, I will fulfill their, the number of their days, talking about long life. In the same chapter of Isaiah, verse 20, no more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who dies not uh, not who does not, I'm sorry, and an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner at a hundred years old will be accursed. So even there, what you get Isaiah promising is there is this time when long life is going to be coming. 
it, it's part of that promise. So that promised land that we're looking at, I think what it's pointing to is the, the, the new heavens and the new earth. We will dwell on the earth in all of these glorious promises. We will have feasted on Christ. We will have drunk of the Holy Spirit. We will have children who won't die. We will have long lives. Now the question is, but people die. Is that the new heavens and the new earth? Well, that's what he says in Isaiah. As he mentions the new heavens and the new earth. And let me just cop out and say it's a complicated question. Um, but what you get is this picture of the fulfillment of all of those promises. So again, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So all of the promises of the old covenant, all of these covenant promises come first of all, to Israel in a, in a small way, but ultimately they echo through history and they come to us in Christ in their fullness so that we may utter our amen to God, so that we may f- fulfill that. So how does this work? What does this do for us? Um, remember that Israel faced a long and a dangerous journey. They're going to run into some real hazards along the way. They're going to have big wars. They're going to get chased off people's property. It's going to be a bad time. So look at your life now. Are you discouraged by the obstacles we face? Do you, do you face any obstacles? Um, the West is largely rejecting Christianity. The Christianity that made the West great, they are now turning on it and rejecting it. Um, our politicians and college campuses disparage Christianity. They, they're questioning the right of free, uh, the freedom of religion. They're, they're saying it's a bad thing. We want to get rid of this stuff. Um, there's the rise of the nuns. The new generation is saying that they have no religious affiliation. Does that, that bring you any kind of discouragement, make you think maybe we're getting set back a little bit? Um, what about in China? In China, there's intimidation and arrests and tearing down of churches. Christians are being really opposed in, in China. Why, Lord? I thought this was supposed to be, you're going to go before us and make it all great. So, how do those promises in their fulfillment in this time now where we're still in the wilderness, how does that sound? It, it sounds like maybe it's not working. Is this really working? Is this going the way it should? One of the common objections to Christianity that you hear quite a bit, especially recently, is that there's evil in the world. There's evil. There is evil in the world. If God is all good and God is all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Why do children suffer? Why do, why do uh, diseases rampage like the coronavirus? Why, why? If God is all good and God is all powerful, then shouldn't he just do away with that? What the question is actually asking, and, and the asker, the, asker the, the questioner probably doesn't even recognize it, is what they're saying is, God's not fixing it on my timeline. My timeline is it should be, should be fixed now. Why is God not answering my timeline? Why hasn't he fixed it already? Um, is it possible that God is actually addressing things like the West turning away from Christianity, China's persecution of Christians, the violent, sometimes bloody opposition in Islam? Is it possible that God is addressing that and the other evils in the world, but just not on the timeline we think he is? I think the answer to that comes in a parable. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 13, It says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, 
the weeds appeared also. And his servant said to the master of the house, um, Master, did, we, did you not sow good seed in your field? How is it that we have weeds? If God's good, why is there evil in the world? Why do we have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. This wasn't God's original plan. This wasn't the, the purpose for which he created the world. He'll get it there, but this wasn't it. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go out and gather them? Talking about the weeds. Do you want us to go out and just rip up all the weeds right now? Do you want God to send his angels and wipe out evil right now? Well, as long as it's somebody else's evil, not mine. Um, maybe God is doing this carefully with purpose. But the, the master said, but he, he said, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you uproot the wheat along with them. Let them both grow up together until the harvest. At a harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barns. So, so as we're in this interim period, as we're going through after Jesus' resurrection but before glory, we're wandering in the wilderness. We have been delivered. We have been let out of Egypt. We have been set free from our sins. Our taskmaster has been set aside. But we haven't arrived in the promised land yet. We're still traveling. And so why is it in this interim period between Jesus' first coming and his second there's still evil. There's still, you see the church rise in an area and then disappear. Look at the Middle East, Ephesus, um, Corinth, all of those places. The church is largely dead in those areas. That can be really disheartening. You can look at that and go, why, Lord? I thought we were going to go out and take over the promised land. Why is it we move forward and what happens behind us falls away? You look at the West and you say, Lord, this was a bastion of missionaries to the world. This is, the West gave us some of the greatest Christian writings, the greatest Christian thinkers. Why is it falling away? Why is there evil? And Jesus' answer is, because it's not time to uproot that yet. It's not he's saying, I'm not going to deal with it. He's saying, let it all grow up. And then Jesus himself talked about, the sheep will be on my right hand and the goats on my left. I will part them out at the right time. And so as we're going through this, remember, you have an angel going before you, an angel in whose name God resides. And, and just like he did for Israel, nothing is going to come to us unless it comes through that angel, unless God has ordained it, unless Jesus has said, this is what's going to happen next. I will allow this to happen. I will not allow that to happen until the time of the harvest, until the time when the harvest comes in. And then the weeds need to be bundled up. And what did Jesus promise us about that harvest? He said, the harvest is, the, the wheat, or the, I'm sorry, the field is white unto harvest, and there are not enough workers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send more workers into it. So that when the, when the, the crop comes in, the wheat will, all of the wheat, all the proper wheat will be gathered into the barns and the weeds will be burnt. And so that's the picture that we're in now. This is the promise. Jesus is the, the hail and amen, the yes and amen to all of those old covenant promises. They get a, a brief glimpse in the old covenant, but the new covenant comes along. And they're brought to us in full measure. And so where we're at, folks, is we're in the wilderness. And we're wandering. And we're waiting. And, and we're seeing things that we don't like. We're terrified because armies come against us, because bad things happen. But what we, we're called to do is to remember the promises. Um, there's an old hymn that, that warns us, it's not just all of those big things that I said. 
that, that are our enemies. There's an old hymn that really helps bring it, I think brings it right to home. It says, when snares of death surround us. So what are those snares of death? What are the things that are going to snare us? Pride, ambition, love of ease. Mammon with her false allurements. Words that flatter. Smiles that please. Then, Lord, be our shield. So we face all kinds of wicked enemies, but know that the Lord has sent his angel before us. He is going to regulate what comes to us. He has given us his Holy Spirit. We have water that has filled us. We eat of his body. We, we partake in his sacrifice so that we might be saved. And so the promises that Israel had were just a glimpse. The fullness is what we have. If they could struggle to hang on, can we make it with even better promises, even greater fulfillments? So that's, that's the blessing here is you don't want to be the weed. You want to be the wheat. So the way you be the wheat is you hang on to the promises. You trust the promises. You say, Lord, that's what I believe. That's what's true. And that's what I want. So what we'll see next week is we'll see Moses, rat, um, um, Moses will um, uh, enact the covenant. He will offer a sacrifice. He will sprinkle blood on the people, on the book of the law, and on the priest. And then they will go up and they will sit on a mountain and they'll eat with God. So even in the, the, or the, uh, the establishment of the covenant, there's this wonderful promise, sit down and have a meal with God. Who doesn't want that? That sounds great to me. So with that, let me close us in prayer. Lord, um, thank you for the, the tremendous promises that you've given us to the covenants of the promise, the, the way that you have brought those promises from Abraham through Israel, through David, to us, that in Christ, he might be the yes and amen to all of those promises that they come to us on whom the end of the ages have come. And Lord, I pray that as we go through life, as, as we face the struggles, as we hear uh, the, the terrors of death that surround us, the, the, the things that threaten us on a regular basis, Lord, I pray that you would have us all to hang on to these promises to say, nothing comes to me but what Jesus has allowed. Nothing comes to me but what Jesus has allowed. So Lord, build our faith. Help us to trust you more because as we trust you more, we'll walk with you more. And the more we walk with you, the more you, our enemies are your enemies. And that's what we're after, Lord. That's what we want is to be aligned with you. So align our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.